Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your everlasting hand that leads us into your truth. We ask that as the word is preached, as we think concerning the Great Commission, as it has so been stated throughout the church in its history, we ask that you would cause it to be echoing in our ears, in our hearts, in our actions, in what we do in evangelizing those around us. We ask, Father, that you would bless the preaching and the hearing. We ask that you would strengthen us by your word, and we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to be with us here. And we so ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. It has been so deemed the Great Commission. You'll even have that as a heading in your Bible. Let's read verses 16 to 20, the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus has appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Or, as amen means, let it be so. The setting of this particular set or context of verses is set after the resurrection. The resurrection comes to its climax as Christ appears to his disciples. Here, he's going to authorize his disciples to go forth in his name and under his power. They receive here the commission which has been the hallmark of this gospel in general, and probably one of its most beloved verses. It's not simply the appearance of Jesus that caps the gospel message here. It's not that just he shows up, but that he actually gives his disciples a particular word. What will the remnant receive by way of instruction to further the work that Christ has constituted? And by what authority will they set out to accomplish it? This is how Matthew finishes his gospel. Let's look first at verse 16, and we'll break it down by these few verses. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Now, remember, it's not the twelve, it's the eleven. Judas had gone to his own place, as John 17, verse 12 said, he is the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He's gone to hell. Judas has been removed from the picture. And from that point forward, the Gospel writers and the Luke Act narrative, when Luke writes both the Gospel of Luke and Acts, he makes it a point that Judas is always remembered as a wicked man. He's gone, and now there's the eleven, not the twelve. Judas is excluded. And the disciples had been instructed to meet Jesus in Galilee, and by a mountain he designated that he meet with them. Now it's interesting that Jesus took care to choose a mountain close by the disciples, where they lived, where they certainly knew it was their hometown, Galilee. And it has been traditionally seen as where the transfiguration took place. This might possibly be the same mountain that he's designating to meet with his eleven. Matthew is concerned with mountains. Jesus teaches from a mountain. He's transfigured on a mountain. Jesus comes and meets with them on a mountain. And so in verse 17, they see the risen Jesus. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Now this is a very interesting verse. Upon seeing Jesus, all of them... Worship him. 
just as the women did upon seeing him risen on the Lord's day morning. Now, what other response would men take when seeing the risen Christ? Worship is due, and the disciples worship him. The proper response of any subject to the king is that he receives reverence and worship. Here Jesus is the risen king. He's not just a resuscitated king, but he's a resurrected king. He was dead, and now he's alive. The stamp of approval on the work of the mediator. God raised him from the dead. So they worship him. That's right. That's what they should do. But then it says that some doubted. Now this is very strange, because a moment ago they all worshipped him, and now some are doubting. Is this the... The doubting Thomas idea. If you turn and, and, and look in, in the book of John, Thomas doubts. He says, I want to see the nails in his hands and in his side and let me put my finger there. And, but it seems a little strange here because first they all worship him and then some doubt. But they worship somebody that they didn't know. What's actually going on? Well, the word here does not mean unbelief. It's not like with Thomas. I don't believe. Nor does it mean that they were perplexed in the sense of being bewildered or confused as to who Jesus was. They just worshipped him. This particular word occurs here and in Matthew chapter 14 verse 31 where Peter walks on the water but then becomes afraid and then Jesus says, Why do you doubt? Ye of little faith. In Peter's case, the idea surrounded being double-minded. He had his eyes on the water and the waves and the wind and on Jesus. But because they weren't fully focused on Jesus, he wavered. There was a great amount of uncertainty that went into his mind. Look at these waves, I'm going to sink. Well, here it seems to point to the idea that there was uncertainty as to the next steps. What would we do? You're leaving us. They doubted as to what their mission was. Not that Jesus wasn't who he was. They just worshipped him. But they were uncertain as to what Christ wanted them to do since they knew he was leaving. He was going away. And that some great transition from having his presence to not having his presence was going to take place. Remember, he had had this long discourse in John about sending the Spirit because he was leaving and they wanted to go. This is for them too much too fast. It would be inconsistent to think that first they fell down and worshipped him, because you can't worship something that you don't know, which is exactly what the text says they did. They worshipped him, they knew it was him, but then some doubted. But it remains perfectly clear that they all worshipped him, but some of them were uncertain about what they were going to do next. He's going to leave. Now what? They needed some reassurance as to what the risen Savior wanted from them next. So, in keeping with the context of the passage, that's exactly what Jesus does. And he comes to them and he speaks to them. He commissions them in verses 18 and 19. It's set, these particular verses are set in the context of some imperatives. He says, go and make and baptize and teach. Go and do these things. They're commanded of them. They're in the present. The participles here linked together in the way that the construction is makes them all imperatives ultimately. Go and do these things. Make. Do that. Baptize. Do that. Teach. Do that. And so Jesus first says, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now Jesus was first seen and they worship him. But now he comes to them. And he speaks to them. He's not distant. He's not the transcendent God, although he is. At the same time, he comes near to them and speaks to them. And so there's first an assertion of his authority. Christ, as mediator, has fulfilled all that the Father had given him to do. And does not take authority. He doesn't say, I took it. It says, uh, and although he would be perfectly right to do that. He is God. He has all authority already, but instead demonstrates that all authority had been given to him because of the work that he had finished as the mediator. So God had blessed him with all the authority that the covenant mediator should have. 
So we have this universal dominion that he has over heaven, over earth, as the covenant mediator, the elect servant, who, by the authority of the Father, makes a covenantal declaration. He says, I have all authority as the covenant mediator. All things are subject to me, he says. The wind and the waves, if you remember, were subject to him. He healed people. Diseases were subject to him. He cast out demons. They were subject to him. He could call down legions of angels. They were subject to him. So, how does he suddenly now have all authority when he did all of those things already? Well, he has all authority over heaven and earth as the covenant mediator, as the one in his office, his kingly office, he fulfilled all things. So the Father blessed him. It wasn't that he suddenly got power where he didn't have power. Christ executes the office of the king in calling out of the world the people to himself, and giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them. This is the, this is the, the larger catechism. This is what it says. In bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. That's the power that's been given to Christ as the covenant mediator. He had all power. He, he has all power now. He could have calmed the wind and the waves of Hurricane Wilma if he so desired right now. But he also has the power to create hurricanes and send them where he so desires them to go. Not only does he have power over things of the earth, but he has power over the souls of men and over grace. And over everything. So he first tells them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commission you, but let me first say, I have all power, all authority over heaven, over earth, over everything as the covenant mediator. Then he commands them to make disciples of the nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, listen. They're not allowed to sit back and wait for disciples to come to them. It's not what he says. They're commanded to go. The book of Acts demonstrates the hearty missionary endeavor of the church beginning in Jerusalem and extending into the utter parts of the earth. They went. They sent. They have to go and make disciples. After the resurrection of Christ... The restriction of the gospel message, the same gospel that Abraham had, is now unleashed on all of the nations. And God had caused these nations to walk in darkness for a very long time, for thousands of years. But now, he's unleashed the gospel freely and without restriction, and he tells them, you go. And what are they supposed to go and do? Well, they're supposed to go and make disciples. In the history of salvation, making disciples now reaches past the inclusivistic Jewish nation, which it was before. It was just the Jews that would proselyte and come into our nation. And, but now, it encompasses the outward inclusion of the Gentile nations. Nations are going to be discipled. Nations are going to hear the gospel. How Christ had long desired to gather the children of Jerusalem in. Remember when he, he weeps over Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke? How he had longed to gather in your children as a mother gathers in her chicks, right? It's the hen. Well, now, they're commanded by the covenant mediator to include the Gentiles. In fact, they're to include all the nations. Jerusalem should have been going out. They should have been making disciples already. But, they didn't. Instead, they turned inward on themselves. And now Jesus is commanding the disciples to go out and gather them in. Discipleship, then, is a priority in the mind of Christ 
and how the church is to function. Going out. But we'll see that the church often mistakes discipleship for some sort of rudimentary Sunday school class. They think that's discipleship, but that's not what Christ has in mind. Making disciples has particular steps and relations. They have to do something. Jesus isn't introducing anything new or novel or different. Converts into Judaism had to go through rigorous and vigorous indoctrination and ceremonial ritual in order to be part of the theocracy of Israel. They had to go through stuff to get in. Discipleship is something that the apostles knew about. But now, there is a specific formula for discipleship. The Trinitarian formula that he gives them in saying, baptize them, in the second half of verse 19. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So he tells them to go, to make disciples, and this is how you do that. You baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the first part. The Old Testament is saturated with texts about the sprinkling of the nations. Isaiah 44.3 says, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty, and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants, and my blessing on your offspring. Or in Ezekiel 36.25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Or Isaiah 52.15, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Baptism is administered in the Trinitarian formula, yet in the single name of God. One name into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Not the names of. This is a, a covenant formula. A covenant relationship with the mediator who subdues his converts by two things. He subdues them by the word and the sacraments, baptizing them. A sacrament is a visible sign of the word. Listen to what the catechism says. A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein, by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. So, they are utilizing baptism as an entrance into the covenant. They are sprinkled by baptism and the sign of the covenant is placed on them. What is baptism? Again, let's listen to what the larger catechism says. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein Christ has ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So they got it right. The name of God. To be a sign and seal of engrafting into himself of remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit, of adoption and resurrection under everlasting life, and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. They are to go and make disciples by baptizing them, and thus they are ushered into the church, and then secondly, in verse 20, in the first part of it, teach them. This is a tall order. Teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. Though all the Gospels are filled with historical narrative and teaching, Matthew's Gospel is particular to this idea of teaching, housing it in certain sections through his Gospel. There are seven sections to it. These teaching sections... Especially seen, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches the law. And those enrolled in Christ's church must be taught. They have to be discipled in this way. Teaching them. Now, Christ is speaking to the eleven. This is not a blanket statement to the church. This is for the eleven. The officers in the church to teach the word and to administer the sacraments. This is who it's to. Wasn't to the 500, wasn't to the women, was to the 11 apostles. And what are they supposed to do? They are to teach everything. An exceedingly tall order to teach everything that Christ taught. He knew the Old Testament comprehensively. He took 
the Old Testament, commented on it, and explained to the disciples, understanding key ideas and key truths, bringing all the teaching into one comprehensive salvation history. And he teaches them that it culminates in his death, in his resurrection, in his present intercession. The scriptures speak about him. So he taught them concerning himself, all of the scriptures. So they are to teach all of the scriptures. But, even though that's a pretty tall order, there's a great promise that he gives them. In going, in making, in baptizing, in teaching, he will be with them. There is that promise in verse 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. It's Forceful, and it applies to the commission, and it's based on the magnitude of the commission that he gives his disciples. There's no way that they can do this on their own. He must be with them. All authority, all nations, all are baptized, all are taught. That can only be accomplished by Christ's mediatorship through the power of the Spirit. Now, it's not that the Spirit wasn't in the Old Testament saint or was not with the Old Testament saint, but here, as Christ is seated as the resurrected mediator and the King of the New Covenant, the Spirit is directly administered and sent by Him and the Father to draw and convert the elect and to aid and equip the church for its continued and expanded task. So the difference between the Old Testament saint and the New Testament saint is that the Old Testament saint did not have the fullness of the Messiah sitting at the right hand of God, sending out with the Father the Spirit to do the task that he is appointing the disciples right here to do in converting the nations. That's the difference. Here, Jesus is going to go. And he's going to send the power of the Spirit for the disciples that they might be able to do this great commission that he's sending them on. And as Matthew's Gospel begins with Emmanuel, God with us, so it also ends with, Lo, I am with you always. It's bookended by the idea that God, Christ, is with us. And it's only through the presence of Christ that the task of the church is accomplished. So, Jesus declares his authority, he commissions his officers, and he assures them of his continued presence in the future for ministry. That is what this is teaching. Now, the doctrine from the text that I want to pull out is the Great Commission, as intended by Jesus Christ, was given to his officers and surrounds the teaching of the Word and the administration of the sacraments. He gives it to the eleven and tells them that they're supposed to do two things, baptize and teach. They make disciples that way. Many often take the statement as blanket for every individual Christian, from, you know, little ten-year-old Johnny to, uh, to Grandma Jones in the backwoods of the Blue Ridge Mountains. This is not what Jesus is talking about. The discourse by Christ was, one, given to the eleven officers of his church, and two, surrounds the administration of the word and the administration of the sacraments and making converts to the visible church. That's what the Great Commission is to them. Now, is it a Great Commission? Yes, it's a Great Commission. Is it a Great Commission to all men in the same way? Not even remotely. There's, there's steps that are taken for evangelism to really take place and how evangelism and missions actually works. You'll see in a moment. That's why a thorough and a full understanding of Reformed evangelism is so key in accomplishing Christ's work of building his church in the way he desired. He has a certain way about going about doing it. It's not that those who are not officers in the church are not engaged in evangelism. Quite the contrary. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's exceedingly important to go about the building of the church in the manner that Jesus dictates, regardless of pragmatism. You know, the ends justifies the means, so we'll do this anyway because we'll get lots of people. This is not what Jesus is talking about. The ministry of the church surrounds only two means by which Christ will build his church. And Matthew is very keen on this as he demonstrates it throughout his gospel. The ministry of the word and the ministry of the sacraments. I am with you always. 
the promise of blessing only applies to these two means of grace. This is all Jesus has promised to the church. I will bless the teaching of the word and I will bless the sacraments. That's where I am. Contemporary marketing for the church is kind of like a, a sampler appetizer at Chili's or a restaurant. Who has the best assortment and sampler for me and my family? It's the way people think about how they go to church. Does the church have a youth group? Does it have a men's ministry or women in the church ministry? Or does it have an evangelistic paint-by-numbers class? Does it have something for singles? Does it have something um, as an outreach group which it's formulated that I can be a part of? How can we attract a lot of people at once? Beach Fest. Face painting and the gospel. Great mix. Right? They don't make a good mix. That's not what Christ is talking about. What is the best way that we can lure Harry and Sally into the church? That's how evangelism usually works. How can we get them in the door? These are the questions of modern evangelism and missions. And that's what 21st century Christians believes will grow churches. And you know, they're right. They're right. They will grow their church if they do those things. But that's not what God is after. He is after, as we talked about before, worshipers of the Father who worship in spirit and truth. He's not interested in megachurches. And he's not interested in big numbers. Christian books are published that outline complex marketing steps to growing your church. Rick Warren's abominable book, The Purpose Driven Church, outlines how you can take your small cell group to megachurch status by copying the same principles that CEOs use to develop successful corporations. And guess what? When you apply those principles in those ways, you're going to have a big church. But it's not what Christ commanded. And it's not the steps that Christ tells his 11 disciples to do. Why is Warren's book so popular? It grows churches. The business mogul mentality really works and brings in revenue because more parishioners mean more money. More money means more ministries. More ministries mean that can't we meet the needs of the poor and meet the needs of this person? That's where their mind is. It demonstrates also, though, that the heretical Arminian man-centered appealing message of a different gospel resonates very well with unchurched Harry and Sally. They like that. And they pour into the church because it appeals to their flesh. Something they can do just a little bit. Something that they can do that makes them feel good. But Jesus' plan of action is actually much simpler than the purpose-driven church. And it's really comprised in four verses that we just read. Listen to this again. And then I'm going to stress the word, only. The only means that Christ has promised to, one, be with the church in, and two, constitute the growth of the church, is by the word and sacraments. That's it. No other way. Other ministries and other outreach tactics simply detract from the glory of God's ordained means of evangelism. God has not promised to bless face-painting parades and puppet shows. He hasn't promised to do that. But what determines effectiveness in outreach ministry? What determines effectiveness in evangelism? Another way of asking that same question by a rhetorical answer is to ask this. What is God's ordained means towards building his church? That's how we ask that question. What is God's ordained means? Well, it's the ministry of the word and sacraments. The word. The larger catechism says, by whom is the word of God to be preached? The answer is the word of God is to be preached only by such as are sufficiently gifted and also duly approved and called to that office. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4. Listen to this in 8 to 13. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He died. Right? Came to earth. He died. 
And he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. When he ascended, he led captivity captive, and then he gives gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He came to earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. And he himself gave, oh, listen, he's going to give. This is what he gives. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is what he did. He gives his officers in that way. He gives these particular offices in the church. Prophets and apostles and evangelists and pastors and teachers in different times of the church for its growth. The resurrected Christ gifts men for pastoring, for preaching, for teaching, so that they can subsequently build disciples in the work of their ministry. That's what disciple making is. So the word is exceedingly important in that way. And then also the sacraments are exceedingly important because they're accomplished by ministers of the word. Remember what sacraments are. Simply, they're a visible sign of the word. And so he gives these gifts, these officers who minister the word, they minister it in teaching and they minister it in the sacraments, which are visible signs of the word for entrance into the church in which in Matthew 16 and 18 the keys or authority were given to the apostles to allow or forbid entrance into the church by church discipline. He gives them power to do that and building up the body. So baptism ushers them in and now they're in a covenant relationship with God and then they're to be taught and then they grow. Baptism is noted by birth or entrance into the church and then later as the Lord had taught his disciples, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is noted by conscious growth. It's a sign of growth. Everyone is not authorized to teach and administer the sacraments. You, you might say to yourself, are you saying that Christ appointed only 11 people to teach? That's it? That's exactly what the text says. This is not the women who saw him on resurrection morning or the 500 he appeared to. Acts demonstrates this, though. The continued reception and propagation of this commission through the eleven to others who were later made disciples and then sent out in an official capacity to preach the word. Think of some of the people. Philip. He was a preacher, but he was a prototype deacon and an evangelist. Stephen. He was also one of these uh, initial prototype deacons. Apollos after being instructed more readily, was sent out as a minister, according to 1 Corinthians 3.5, and may have even written the book of Hebrews. Timothy, Titus, both pastors of churches. Epaphras, Colossians 1.7, says he is a fellow diaconia, minister, servant in that way. So, it's not just these 11, but these 11 are going to multiply. It's kind of like that commercial that you saw, you know, about the hair products, where it says, and they told two friends, and they told two friends, and they told, and it keeps growing as a result. So, you, we have to ask the question, does this ministry of the word and sacrament detract from believers in their personal evangelism? Not at all. Their evangelism pervades every area of life by their witness. And that's exceedingly important. Your witness. They are living testimonies to the word and to the sacraments. The world has a dark blanket of sin. It's just black. Like here, when we're dealing with the power outages with Wilma, you look out the front door and it's just black. But if one person walks down the street with a flashlight, you see him because... All around him is black. And this light is created and sustained by the word and sacraments. That's you. That's the believer. Individually, as Jesus taught, these lights light houses. Just like we light a candle because we have no power, or we plug in one lamp to the generator, we get some light in the house. It lights up the house. It doesn't light up the whole city. It just lights up the house. But, collectively, if we all put a lamp, and we all have power, 
and we all have electricity at some point, we'll have that back, then it will be a city again. Somebody could see from a distance all of the lights on. Collectively, Jesus says, they're like a city on a hill where the weary traveler goes by and sees the lights. All of the collective lights. That's why 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So listen to what he says. Peter encourages the church to be able and ready to give an answer or a defense of what people see. People can't read minds. They can't read your mind. No, you're standing in the middle of the mall and you look around. There are Christians walking to and fro, but you can't read their minds. You don't know if they are a Christian or not. They have to see something. People are asking you about the hope that lies in you because you are not partaking of their evil deeds and rather standing as a good witness against them. What is the Christian to do? How does he then at that point play his part in evangelism? Well, he invites them to sit under the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. Here are these people who have been profoundly affected by the word and sacraments and they want to place them under the conduit means of grace that God has instituted for the conversion of souls. So everybody plays a part. God will bless the efforts of the Christian in giving an answer and subsequently use those opportunities to bring people in, to draw them under the means of grace. It's not that every Christian is to stand up on the corner with their Bibles and become itinerant preachers, or you know, put a podium in the middle of the mall and start yelling out, but instead... In every single area of your life, in every vocation that the Christian is in, in every sphere, they are to affect what the Gospel of Matthew says in Christ's teaching, preservation. Salt and its saltiness. Salt preserved the fish from going bad. So by outward witness, and yes, sometimes a vocal witness against evil, Christians are preservatives. They are, as disciples witnesses to the changed reality that is affected by the high priest, the covenant mediator, Jesus, through the Spirit. It's done through preaching and administration of the sacraments. And it demonstrates the converting power of Christ in their own life. They are ready to give an answer for the hope that lies in them. The 21st century contemporary church gains marketed converts. But the church makes disciples. And then they, in turn, demonstrate what the Word has done to them outwardly. That's what making disciples is all about. Then people see. And they say, what makes you different? What is it about? Why don't you do these things? Jesus sets forth missions. Jesus is setting forth evangelism. That's why... In our day and age, evangelism must be reformed to constitute the means that Christ has given. What is your motivation for evangelism and missions? Do you even have a motivation? What do you want to see in our church here? What is it? Warm bodies? More people? I mean, we could do a lot of things to get more people into the church. That's not hard. The Methodist church down the street has a sign that says, come and use our stove to cook your food. People are going to go in there, and they're going to cook their food, and they're going to witness to them. That's the way that they get people into their church. Slick and clever. Harmless, relatively harmless. But is it evangelism? Well, they think so. They think that it is. How about, how about we hang a sign up? Come and hear us preach to you about your sin and misery and the remedy found in Jesus Christ, the only way to heaven. Who will come? Really, based on Christ's explicit directives for ministry to the first 11 officers in his church, he was profoundly clear about how the church is to grow and how church growth works. Disciples are made by preaching and teaching the word. Disciples are made by baptism and administering the means of grace found in the sacraments. That's why the apostle saw this as such an important duty 
that in Acts chapter 6, they couldn't be bothered with doing anything else. They have to do just that. So they had deacons that did all of the other stuff that is important. It's not that it's not important. There are great passages in Scripture dealing with all the stuff that the church has to deal with. But the officers in the church, the ones who are teaching, the ones who are administering the sacraments, praying for power, they had to get deacons to handle that other stuff. If we want to be successful in evangelism, our respective roles in that evangelistic endeavor first must be defined, and then they have to be acted upon. What is Christ saying to the eleven? In the most basic terms, he's directing them to bring back into covenant relationship covenant members who are already covenant breakers in Adam. The Father wants them back. Really, it's utterly impossible for us to do any real evangelistic work without understanding Christ's covenantal exhortation to the disciples in this passage. Make disciples, make covenant members by initiating sacraments and teaching them everything that Christ has taught the disciples about being in covenant relations with the Father. That's what evangelism is about. Isn't that what the Father is seeking? It's the kind of worshiper he wants. How do we engage this structured, simple approach. I mean, really, to be a missionary in its most basic term is to stand for Christ in our vocations, in all our activities that have been ordained for us as good works that we should walk as covenant members in his church that way. Whether we're mothers or wives or house cleaners or uh, media moguls or we're uh, managers or hairdressers or whatever it is that we do, doesn't matter what we do, we're to outwardly demonstrate the converting power of Christ in such a way that prompts questions about what it means to be a disciple, a covenant worshiper of the Father. People will come to you and get answers. That's how our lives are supposed to reflect who we are. We are supposed to be shining lights in that way. They're supposed to come to us to get answers. What is that in you? What's that? Why are you so happy? I, had one person, I remember one person asked, why are you so joyful? You're always joyful. What's the problem with that? That's really what he was asking. That's weird. I'm not joyful ever. Why are you always joyful? The, Christian, the Christian's outward witness is key. Listen, it's key to church growth. The ministry of the word and the ministry of the sacraments should have such a profound effect on you and in you that it overflows into your outward daily life with all your contacts and with all your personal interactions. Now hold that thought for a minute. The work of evangelism for the Reformed Church is exceedingly important and has to be done in the right way. Tomorrow is Reformation Day. Tomorrow we're really commemorating Christian evangelism. The height of Christian evangelism can be seen in two places really in history you really want to get down to the nitty-gritty. One, with Christ and his apostles. Right? And secondly, with the Reformation. The Reformation brought back to light the work of the resurrected and glorified Christ through the church's ministry of the word and sacraments. That's what it did. The contemporary 21st century church redefines word and sacrament and tries to dress them up and make them attractive so that they can gain converts. That's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church did in reverse during that day. That's really a redefining of the mission of the church. Jesus tells the disciples to go, and the contemporary 21st century church tells people to come. Come and see what we have. Look at what we have to offer. Evangelism is really marketing in that way. The Roman church did the very same thing, just in a different way. They took the word and sacraments and used them as a tool for power and manipulation. You need what we have. That's advertising. That's exactly what it is. You need what we have, and you don't get it unless we give it to you. And you're going to take it in a certain way. And if you don't take it, we're going to send you to hell. And if you don't take it, we're going to send your relatives to purgatory for a very long time. And you're going to have to do things for us to get them out. The 21st century contemporary church manipulates in the same way, but they just dress it up to attract people. But what did the reformers do? The reformers' radical turn 
from the Roman Catholic Church on this point was to preach the law and the gospel about what power there was in the resurrected Christ and his present intercession. And then to reapply the present ministry of the priesthood of all believers in their respective roles in the church to further propagate the glory of God in the world. That's what evangelism was. For 1517, it was radical to preach about covenant relationships by the grace of God. Because that's not what Rome was teaching. The only relationship that those parishioners had or knew was the power of authority. Not in Christ, but in the church, the Roman church that abused authority. It went from Christ's commission to make disciples to Rome's commission to make superstitious people dependent upon the hierarchy of the church. That's why the Reformation was so powerful in its evangelism. What did they do? They, they hung up a sign, right? Luther hung up a sign, just like the Methodist church down the street. It's a little different. What he did is he preached the word again. And he brought people back into a covenant relationship with God through word and sacraments. That was their aim. That's what they did. Preaching the word and administration of the sacraments. Take that which the people need most, corrupt it, and you corrupt the church. Give it back. And the church experiences the greatest revival in the history of the church since the time of the apostles. And that's exactly what happened with the Reformation. It was never a question as to the manner of marketing. It was instead the motto of this period of time, back to the sources. That was the motto of the time. Ad fontes, back to the sources. Revival, you know who it began with? The officers in Christ's church. Rome wouldn't even allow the people to partake of the complete supper. They wouldn't let them drink the wine. The reformers followed Christ's simple commands to minister the word in sacraments as outlined in Matthew 28. Luther was an official in the church. Calvin was an official in the church. Zwingli was an official in the church. They were officers in the church. And what they did is they brought back the word. They went back to the sources. They went back to the Hebrew text and the Greek text. They went back to study it. And at that point, what did the reformers do that Christ Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church couldn't do or cannot do? Nothing. The entire life of the church revolved around the word and sacraments as Christ instituted them to the officers in the church and ministered to the people. Listen, if I don't do my job correctly in ministering the word to you, then you can't do your job in being empowered by the word and the sacraments in front of other people. And then that won't then spark them to ask you about what's so different. Do you see how that works? That's what Christ was telling the disciples. You go and you make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them what I've told you. And then something else is going to change in them to see, be seen by people around them. The word can't go anywhere if it's not first rightly given. And then it can't be expressed if you're not partaking in it. Do you see the mess then that the contemporary church is in evangelistically when the word is not fully and truly preached? You get these crazy books out there and these crazy guys on television that are just basically telling you to put your best foot forward. Have a great day. Put one foot in front of the other. Now you can get that out of a Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer cartoon. We don't need him to tell us that or any of those guys to tell us that. They think that they are serving God by drawing people in with face painting and things. Instead, you are to be living witnesses to the power of Christ's high priestly intercession through the word and the sacraments. That, in turn, sparks conversations so that you can invite people to church to sit under the word and sacraments. Evangelism has stages. It draws people in by seeing how good of a Christian you are. And that should spark you to consider your walk and your demeanor, how you are before others. 
your evangelistic encounters are very good by way of a litmus test as to how the Word of God is actually affecting you or not. And then it sets those people under the officers in the church who, by extension, are going and making and baptizing and teaching disciples all that Christ commanded. Now, some of those officers are literally sent. Some of those officers go out to foreign places or to cities or different places that they are called by God to go to. Some, for example, like Jonathan Edwards, were commissioned simply to preach over and over and over and over again. Or like Whitfield, over and over and over and over again. He, he actually made a number of trips across the ocean in those days to come over to America and preach in the fields and preach to people. Some are sent out and they go in that literal way. The disciples, some of them did do that. Some of them didn't. James was at the church at Jerusalem. Paul was sent. Peter was sent. Everyone has their respective roles. But it sets them under the officers in the church who are going and making and baptizing and teaching disciples everything that Christ commanded. We must be examining ourselves to be sure that, one, we are ministering by way of word and sacraments, and two, by being affected and becoming living testimonies to Christ's blessed work. Only then will others see that light and be drawn in by the Father. That's how evangelism is supposed to work. That is what Jesus is telling the disciples. The officers of the, of the church are to go and make disciples by baptizing and teaching. Those people are then affected by the word and sacraments. They, in their respective spheres, whatever they do, are affecting others. And see, others are, are seeing them. They're seeing you. They're seeing me in our respective vocations. And they say, why are you the way that you are? And God creates opportunities for us to speak with them and say, come, sit under the word that's transformed me, that's changed me. It can change you as well. The Father is seeking those kinds of worshipers. He's seeking those that will come back into a right covenant relationship with him. Remember, Everybody's fallen in Adam. Everybody is under a wrong covenant relationship with God. He says he wants a right relationship with them and is seeking those kinds of worshipers. So that litmus test with our life, that should cause us to sit and examine ourselves and say, when's the last time I got to talk to somebody about the gospel in any way, shape, or form? How does that affect me? How am I affecting other people? What's wrong there? What's right there? What could I do better? What could I pray for? That would affect growth in that way. Might we take heed knowing that Christ is with us if we are following his prescription for evangelism and that we would reform our evangelism to think in the same way that Christ thought. It's only through the word and it's only through the sacraments that he says he will be with us to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Lord, there are many ways in which we fail you. There are many ways in which we don't follow your law and your teaching and your commandments as we ought. We pray, O oh God, that you would forgive us and that you would help us to be committed to you in every way, shape, or form that you would give us to have the ability to do so. We all have our various uh, vocations that we're in. We are all um, in different areas affecting different people. Whether it be with our relatives that God gives us opportunity or with friends or with uh, employees or with uh, fellow workers or with people that we don't know, strangers that come in off the streets into our places of employment. We ask, oh God, that you would help us to be good witnesses that we might spark a question in others. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would do that for us, that we might demonstrate the living testimony of the word and sacraments, that we might glorify you in your ordained means of blessing the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, and how it affects us and our life. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us in these things, and we so pray it. In the name of Jesus, amen.
happiness as a result of worship? Or do we seek righteousness? Do you see how exceedingly applicatory this is to us in planting this church here amidst all the big churches in the area and all that's going on? Jesus dealt with the Samaritan woman in a certain way because her culture had been informed, her religion rather, had been informed by culture. He had to deal with her guilt. He had to make her sensible of it. He had to demonstrate what salvation was. And he had to talk about worship as central. That was his message. That was his sit-down evangelistic message. How do you want our church to be? Do we really think rightly about worshiping the Father? Church seeks wicked, guilty sinners to worship the Father. We laugh. But is that so off the mark? This is what the Father is seeking. Those that worship Him with the entirety of their redeemed humanity and in the truth. He won't accept anything else. Let's think about that over this next week. Let's pray together. Mighty God, we come before you asking for your forgiveness. And the way that we would think about marketing our church to the world, to fit the world needs, we ask, oh God, that you would please help our minds to stay on a right track. That here we are, worshiping you, and that as those, Lord, that we are able to share the gospel with, that desire to worship you, you are the one who is doing the seeking. You are the Father, seeking those to worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, we pray you would be gracious to us, that you would help us find those seekers, real seekers, not seeker sensitiveness, but those that should be seeking in a right heart, with a right mind, with the entirety of their redeemed humanity to worship you in truth, by special revelation. Help us to think rightly about how we talk about our church and we think about what's important in our church and what's central to us as Christians. Let us not be duped, Lord, to think that we should go out and simply meet the needs of others. Jesus knows the need. And he was looking for wicked, guilty sinners. The Father is seeking wicked, guilty sinners to worship him. He changes them. He gives them living water. And from them flows out eternal life through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask, O oh God, that you'd help us to think rightly. Help us to think soundly. Help us not to give in, O oh Lord, to that which is wrong, to that which culture would so desire to shift our minds. We pray that you would help us to be renewed by right thinking and hold steadfast to all the scriptures. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
and remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.